Well, it's good to be with you today. My name is Bob Kedlisek. I'm one of the pastors here at Bridgewater Church. And actually, I was doing the math, and I officially started November 1st, 2005. So this is like my, I'm into my 18th year here. And uh, so the way I keep track of that is because my son, Ryan, was zero years old when we came. He turned one in February, so... It's always about as old, I've been here about as long as my son. So we've been talking about starting point. What is the starting point of the foundation of Christianity? And this is the last sermon in that series. There's a church down in Georgia that we've taken some curriculum from. We have a starting point class that we have taught in the past uh, that goes, it's like a small group uh, that goes through some of this material. But um, what I wanted to talk to you today is about a passage of scripture in Matthew, and I wanted to give you some background about it before we got into it. Back in the Roman Empire, there was a, a very famous and popular general by the name of Julius who conquered France and part of North Africa. And uh, he wasn't just uh, happy with just being a general. He wanted to be the dictator. So he killed his rivals and became the first Roman tyrant or dictator of that empire. It was a republic before that. And, um, and ruled for about five years before he was assassinated. And Julius, when he died... His adopted son, Augustus, took over the empire, became another dictator, and they never went back to the republic. It was just dictator after dictator. They called themselves emperors. And, um, and so Augustus took over, but they, they threw some Olympic-like games in the honor of Julius after he died. And, you know, think of throwing heavy objects and running and wrestling and stuff like that. Um, well, in the evening, at night, after these games, after they started, a comet appeared in the sky. And so the common people then started talking among themselves and began to believe that that comet was Julius taking his rightful place among the gods in heaven. Now, this also was something that Augustus, his adopted son, thought would play in his favor. And so the Roman Empire officially declared Julius a god two years after he died. And that kind of cemented Augustus's power because that made him the son of a god. In fact, they minted coins at this time. On the one side, it would be uh, Augustus minted these coins. It'd say Julius and had Julius's face, the god Julius. And on the other side, it would have Augustus and it would have his face and it would say Augustus, son of God. And so th these guys had no, they, they did not have like low self-esteem issues. Um, <laughs> that wasn't a problem for them. And, and so after Augustus died, Augustus was the, the tyrant and the dictator who was in charge of the empire when Jesus was born. And after he died, there was a lot of cities and towns named after him. And, um, and one of them was Caesarea Philippi, named after the Caesar Augustus and Philip, the local ruler who, who built it to distinguish it from all the other Caesareas that were renamed. And this is what it looks like today. Not a lot of fun, kind of, kind of, uh, but, but back in the day, it was this bustling, beautiful, uh, you know, newer city had been there for maybe two or three hundred years, but, but he greatly improved it and made lots of new buildings and things. And so, so Caesarea Philippi is where this conversation takes place that I want to read from you from one of the four biographies about Jesus written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this one is, is from Matthew 16. And it says in verse 13, Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, around this city, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
Now, Jesus uses that word, son of man, to refer to himself probably more than any other phrase. And he takes it from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He refers to himself as son of man 88 times in these biographies about him. Daniel 7, 13 says, as my vision continued that night, this is Daniel having a vision um, over 400 years before Jesus was born. I saw someone like a son of man. That's the title. And how does he describe the Son of Man? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient One, or God the Father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule, the Son of Man's rule, is eternal. It will never end, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. And so when Jesus refers to him in this way, it sounds like this humble, simple title, but there's a lot behind it that, that uh, speaks of the majesty and really of, of who he is, um, God, God the Son. So um, verse 14, the disciples reply to this question, right? Who is the Son of Man? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist had, at this point had already been killed, and some thought that, that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead with less hair, Okay, because John never cut his beard or his hair, and, and Jesus did. So, um, but but that, that, that doesn't make sense, but people just make up all sorts of things. When, and so some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Now, Malachi predicts that before the Messiah, before the Savior King would come, that there would be an Elijah-like prophet that would prepare people for him. Jesus at a later point says that John the Baptist was actually the Elijah that was predicted to come. But some people thought that Jesus was that Elijah. And he said, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. I don't know why. They're just prophets. And uh, so um, then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and here's I want to have this on the screen so we see it. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And this is why I gave you all that background about Julius and Augustus and the place that it's named after Augustus, because Augustus was the son of a dead God, Julius. And Peter, I think there's a little sting to what he's saying here. He's like, you're not, you're not the son of some dead dude that people thought were a God. You are son of the real, eternal, living God. God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Have you ever talked to people about Jesus and they just don't get it? Have you ever thought about times in your own life where people talk to you about Jesus and you were just like, yeah, la, 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 whatever, and you didn't get it? And it's because we need the Holy Spirit, we need God to reveal himself to us right? Because without him doing that, we just, you know, it's just like, yeah, you're saying words, and I know, I understand what you're saying, but I just don't believe it. I just don't see it. I just don't understand it. And so he's saying, you know what, my, the heaven, my heavenly Father, he has helped you understand this, revealed this to you, and you did not learn this from any human being. And uh, then he goes on to say this, and there's a lot of controversy about this that we won't really get into, but now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and on this rock, and now if you, you, in the original language, this Peter really is like, um, it's like little rock, okay? It's like you are a pebble. And then he says, upon this rock, upon this big rock, this normal rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
And so he's, so some people believe that, that Jesus is making Peter Pope here. Okay, he's making Peter the, the authority and the foundation of the church. Now, if that's true, five verses later, and you can read it. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, read five verses later, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God. So either the Pope is Satan or, you know, five, just, just like 30 seconds later, or that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is what, what Peter had previously said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the rock that the church is built on. The church is not built on a person who is now dead. That's, that would defeat the whole thing that Peter said. Peter's dead. Jesus is alive. Right? The, the foundation, the rock of this church, and this was predicted in the Old Testament, the, you know, the, the rock that Daniel saw, cleft that coming out of the mountain, but not, not cut out by human hands, would roll down and would crush all the empires before him. And Jesus is the rock, the cornerstone, the builders rejected. And so what he's saying, this is the rock, this is the foundation of the church, is this statement that I am the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that's the starting point, the foundation of Christianity is not, not in a, it's Jesus. It's a person. And he says, and the powers of hell will not conquer it. The church began as a growing gathering of men and women who believed Jesus was the son of God. And this is important because going back to this, he says, I will build my church. There is an unfortunate thing about the word church in English. When you say church to most people, what do they visualize? A building. This did not mean a building. In fact, um, the first English Bible that was translated, it, it, it translated this congregation. You can translate it assembly or, or gathering of people, right? The church is people it's not a structure or a building. Jesus didn't come to begin a construction program. He came to, to begin a, a, a group of people who would follow him and, and love God and be forgiven and live like Jesus. That's, that's why he came. And ever since, though, that we've, we've been really confusing it. When I, we, we don't build churches here at Bridgewater. We build people. Right? When I was in uh, Ukraine, as either 1999 or 2000, and I sat at a dining room table with Pastor Peter Radoslava, one of the pastors of a church in Ukraine, and he got out his family photo album, you know, and he's flipping pages and showing me this is my father, and this is, you know, different family members, and this is our church. I think it was in the 60s. And they said, and this, this is the United Soviet Socialists with bulldozers, bulldozing our church. And this is my brother, who then was arrested because he was a pastor of the church and he was sent to a work camp in Siberia for prison. And this is, and, 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 then, and then, you know, they showed us, they moved the dining room table, they rolled up the carpet that was on the floor, and they showed us the hole and the hatch in their floor where he would hide. When, when the Soviets came looking for him because he became the pastor after his brother got jailed. Did, did they destroy that church in Odessa when they leveled it with bulldozers? No, it just went underground. Did they destroy 
the church when they arrested its pastor and they didn't have a pastor and the other pastor had to flee and couldn't even live at home and didn't watch his kids being raised for, for many years? No, they, because the church is not a pastor either. The church is a gathering of believers. And, and that's what Jesus came to build was a group of people who would be committed and who would follow him. Here go my notes. I guess the sermon's going to be shorter. <laughs> All right. Unless Terry helps me out with that and Joel. Um, here's, I, I went to um, Wales. Well, I'll, before I tell you my Welsh story, um, I've told this story before, but it just bears worth repeating just to rem- remember what, what we're really about. Um, my best friend in high school and college, and he lives in another state now, but um, his church growing up, and I think this was happened when we were in our early 20s, his church came into quite a bit of money for them. It was about $35,000, but back in 1990s, early 90s, that was probably like 70000 100000 today. $35,000, and there's two factions in the church of what to do with this money. I don't know if it was an inheritance or how much they had saved it or whatever, but 35, what do we do with this money? So one group of the church, they said, you know what? We need to reach people in our community. We should hire a youth pastor. So, okay, well, that's a good idea. And then there's this other group of people. No, 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 we have a better idea than that. We need to reach people in this community. We need to build a steeple. But no, 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 you don't understand. It's not just a steeple. This will be a glowing, lighted steeple that could be seen from the highway. You see, because if, if you're struggling with a divorce or you're super depressed, you think, what do I need? I need a glowing steeple. That's what I need, right? If you're, if you're suicidal, you're struggling with addiction, you're like, man, where should I go? I need to go to a glowing steeple. No, you say, I need to, what I need is compassionate people that care about me. That's what I need. Guess which the church went with? I wouldn't be telling you this story if they picked the right option, right? They went with a steeple. And you know what? They never did hire a youth pastor, at least for the next 20 years that I was following that church. And they just dwindled and dwindled and dwindled because they thought that a building was what the church was. Well, they didn't really think that. They thought a building would help them reach people. It's not, buildings don't reach people. Buildings are tools. In fact, when we um, went to Wales for our um, belated 25th anniversary that we took on our uh, 27th anniversary, um, because of COVID and all that, you know, it just, so Becky and I went to Wales and and while we were, I think this might not actually not be in Wales, I think this might be in the Cotswolds. Um, While we were there, we, uh, uh, stopped at this church, and uh, North Leeches, St. Peter's, and St. Paul's Cathedral. So we saw a lot of castles, and we saw a couple churches. I'm not really a big church-building guy, um, but this one was quite impressive because it was built in 1200, and then it was expanded in 1400. And uh, there was uh, the tailors. There was they called them wool men. So wool men in the 1400s were these incredibly wealthy. Um, individuals who made their money by selling wool. And it, it left England and went all over the world and was, was quite, quite well-known and pricey. And so the, these guys, one John Forte, Forte, John Forte said, you know what? We need a bigger church. This is 1400s. So this is like 600 years ago. We need a bigger church. 
Because, you know, when you go to that church, you can see there's pews, and if you were a wealthy individual, you would rent a pew and pay for your pew to sit down. But then everyone didn't fit in the pews, so the other townspeople, the poorer people, they had to stand in the back. And so John Forte said, we need a bigger church. Not because people are standing. No, we don't need that kind. We don't need more seats. No, we need not a bigger church. We need a bigger church that looks more monumental and more impressive. So when people come and look at our church building, they'll say, wow, there must be some really rich, impressive people there. And that's what they did. They did not increase the size, the footprint of the building at all. They just made it bigger. And when you walk into this church, it is a combination between a museum, a beautiful museum, and a tomb. In fact, there's dozens of tombs all along the floor. You can't walk in without stepping on someone's gravestone, including some of the wool men. They gave money for it. And on a typical Sunday in this church today, despite the community being thousands and thousands of people more than it ever was back in that day, there's maybe two dozen people there, three dozen that go to that church because Jesus didn't come so that we would build beautiful buildings. I am not opposed to beautiful buildings. You know, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, perhaps one of the most beautiful structures ever made in human history. I, I love beautiful things, but you know what's more beautiful than St. Peter's Basilica? One human life. One eternal soul. And we may have gone to the the opposite extreme, this is our new building we, we purchased in Tonkanic. That's not exactly a cathedral, is it? <laughs> um, you know, and, well, and I'll just take a side here. We're, we're, uh, in two weeks, we're going to have a special offering. And it's going to go to five different things. I've talked about, um, you know, uh, the uh, multiplying ministry leaders and our interns uh, a couple weeks ago. But I just wanted to mention the, the largest part of this is $225,000 to renovate this building. A little, little less than a year ago, we bought it for $462,000, and a lot of that was from last year's vision offering. We were able to buy it without, um, you know, going into debt at all. And so we have zero debt right now, although we're approved to borrow. Uh, it's about the same size, this building, as this building here. It's about 800 square feet smaller than this building we have here. In, in Tunkhannock right now, they're doing three services. They're running over 300 people every Sunday, and they are just, they have, I think they have three parking spaces. <laughs> and, and so it's just amazing what God is doing. They're our third largest campus right now, larger than Vestal, larger than Conklin, and God is working, and people are getting saved, and, and it's just awesome. But they need space, and the truth is, they can't afford a new building. But Bridgewater Vestal and Conklin and Halstead and Montrose and even Hancock and online, we can afford a new building for them. And so that's what we're asking you to give to. And you might see these numbers and your eyes glaze over because they're so big to you. But there, there's about 1,800 plus people that, that attend Bridgewater every weekend, every Sunday. And 1,800 plus people, a little bit of money goes a long way when you multiply it by that many people. 
And, and so, yeah, it's not a beautiful building, but buildings are tools. That's not the church. Nobody would confuse that with the church, <laughs> right? Nobody would confuse it. When they, we built this building, someone said, did you see that like Bridgewater Township built a new warehouse? I'm like, yeah, there's this, yeah. We need a sign. <laughs> like, then we built the sign. It didn't help. But you know what? It's, that's not what Jesus came to build. He came to build people. And that's what we want to invest in. Is, is people. This is uh, the aerial view. It's about five acres. They are building, the town is build, wants to build a sports complex. There's already a field here. They bought up the property on this side as well. They want to build a sports complex. And they've asked us, hey, could we use your gym? And we were like, absolutely. We'd love to have you use our gym. And now we are like Tunkhannock's like favorite church. <laughs> and, and they've been helping us. And why? You know, I know churches that are like, you can't use our gym and you can't park in our parking lot. We'll put a gate up so that, that students who, who want to go to high school and there's no parking in the high school across the street, we don't want those, those teenagers in our parking lot. They might, you know, smoke. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> anyway, I don't know why that's funny, but all right, moving on. It's a true story. Um, anyway, so... So it's about people. And so I'm going to transition. We're going to get back to Matthew, but I just want to read a passage in Scripture about the kind of people God wants to use. And that's pretty much anyone. And many times the last person that you think God would want to use. And, and this talks about the author of the most books in the Bible, Paul, or, or his, his uh, Jewish name, Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. And so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way. So Christianity is not called Christianity yet. Okay, in the first uh, dozen, couple dozen years of the church, they, they were called many different things. Um, and one of them is followers of the way, because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the Mandalorian, this is the way. That wasn't original to the Mandalorian. It was Jesus who said that verse. Arrest any followers of the way he found there, and he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. He'd already killed at least one Christian. Um, and as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Let me just say, and this is not a warning probably to, to anyone here, but it's a warning that I take comfort in. You mess with the church. Our world loves to hate on the church. In the very least, they say the church is just not necessary, right? I'm sure that you know people in the community. Maybe you're one of those people in the community who would say, yeah, you know, well, you don't need the church to be saved. You don't need the church to go to heaven. Church isn't really a big deal. You know, it's like this extra thing. You mess with the church, you mess with Jesus, the judge of all the earth. He says, you're persecuting me. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. And Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. 
So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. And he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. And now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias, yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. There's lots of Judas is a common name. This isn't the, the bad Judas. He's dead by now. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And he's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls on your name. Do you know people like that? There's, there's a man recently I was talking to, and I've heard this from more than one man, but he came to church one Sunday and he saw somebody and he was like, that's the last guy I would think would become a follower of Jesus. And that's what Ananias is saying. He's saying, Paul, Saul, he's the last guy. You know what? Sometimes the last guy is God's first choice. And he's authorized to arrest everyone, but the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the peoples of Israel. Here, here's the point of this. God has designed you on purpose for a purpose. Right? The foundation of our faith is Jesus Christ, and, it's, and the church is a group of followers of Jesus. It's more and better disciples right, who are wanting to be like him, and it's based upon Jesus, a man, not, not just principles. And God designed you to be a part of that. Here's God's invitation to you today. It's not save yourself. That's every other religion's invitation. Let's help you help yourself. No, we've talked about this in previous weeks. We're dead. Dead people don't solve problems very much, very well. We're spiritually dead, and, and we need God to save us. But his message isn't just, let me save you. It's more than that. It's let me save you, and together, let's save the world. That's his invitation. Because everything that's wrong with the world, almost everything, minus hurricanes and earthquakes, almost everything that's wrong with the world, addiction, broken families, sin, war, crime, bad government, lies, almost everything that's wrong with the world is wrong because more people can be solved if more people would, would follow Jesus Christ. And um, getting back to this verse, I say, you're a Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. I, we just recently switched to the New Living Translation. Uh, we had been using the NIV for a while. I like the NIV better for this one. I even like the King James better on, the, on translating this verse because it says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it or would not withstand the assault um, of, of the church. And, and the reason I like that is because this town that this conversation is taking place, Caesarea Philippi, what was it named before it was renamed for the dead Caesar Augustus? It was named Panis, after the god Pan. The Greeks worshipped many different gods, and Pan was a satyr. He was half goat, half man. And, and this was the temple in the region dedicated to Pan. 
and, and it, it's called the Grotto of Pan, and there was previously big, huge buildings and things, and this was where the Jordan River flowed from. So this is the source of the Jordan River. Inside this huge cavern, there was a, a, what they thought perhaps bottomless well, dark, cold well that went deep down into the earth. Now, there were some earthquakes since then. This is over 2,000 years ago that have changed the course of that water so that it comes out in a different place now. But, but, but this, this was, they thought, an entrance to the underworld. And so there was this enormous temple that was outside of it to Augustus, and then there was these gates on the end of the temple, and they called those gates the gates of hell. And I will not tell you what they did at the gates of hell because it's too disgusting. But they worshiped this goat God. In fact, Satan today is often portrayed, right, the pentagram as a goat. It was a satanic, this was a center of satanic worship. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, he says, I'm going to build my group of people, Jesus followers, and not even a place like this is going to withstand it. You know what? They don't worship Pan there anymore. But you know, Pastor Aaron Patton up in Vestal, he's been there many times. And many Christian groups will go here. And you know what they'll do at the gates of hell? They'll pray to the God of heaven because the gates are gone. They did not withstand the assault. They have been conquered. The worship of Pan in this place is gone, but the worship of Jesus Christ still continues. And this is what God wants us to, to join him in doing, to being a part of, of not just I'm saved, whew, at least I'm going to heaven. No, to be a part of changing the world. That's his invitation. Let me change you. Ask for my forgiveness. Give me your life. Make, make, make me your Lord. And then together, we will change the world. I, I think, what if, what if I were to tell you that you could literally save someone's life if you were uncomfortable five minutes a day? Would you do it? Five minutes, and literally uncomfortable, not like, you know, when the doctor says, this may hurt a little bit. Like, not that kind of uncomfortable. Like, literally, just uncomfortable. And... How you do that is you tell other people about Jesus. But the hardest part of telling people about Jesus is really the first 60 seconds, right? It's the first, it's the, how do you get there? Like, I know how to talk to someone about the Pittsburgh Steelers, right? You just ask them, like, hey, are you into football? No, I hate it. Okay, never mind. You know, are you into football? Yeah, what, who are you a fan of? The Browns. All right, I can, Steelers are actually better than the Browns. I can talk to this guy. You know, um, you know, I know how to talk to someone about the Steelers, but how do you talk to someone about Jesus? And it's the first statement. And so uh, what I want you to do is not to memorize all these questions. What I, what I want all of you to do, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, is to pick one question and ask everyone that question. And by everyone, I mean if you're married, your spouse. If you have kids, your kids. If you have brothers and sisters or aunts or uncles, th them. If you have friends, Hopefully you have friends. Ask your friends, right? If you don't have friends, ask the person next to you, you know, when the service is over. Like, literally, ask everyone and get good at, at asking a question that can lead to a conversation about Jesus. 
and, and pick it. Like, so the guy who, who told me this or that, that I heard this from, he, he, this is his question. What do you think happens when you die? That's not my first question, okay? That's a little dark, all right? Hey, how are you? Oh, yeah, Tom. Yeah, good to meet you, Tom. Hey, what happens if you were to die right now? Like, is that a threat? Like, what you, am I going to die right now? Like, should I call 911? What? Like, but you know what? In certain times, that could be a good question. Some of you maybe could pull it off. I don't know. But, but maybe one of these other ones. How do you know something's true? What, you know, because we want to find out, like, like, what are you basing your life upon? I'm basing my life upon the fact that this is God's word and Jesus Christ died and rose again for me. That's the basis of my life. Maybe someone else is basing their life on, on, on something else, but we got to find out. How do you know something's true? And that might help you get to a spiritual conversation. What's the most important thing in your life? Why? You know, I just ask everybody this. What's the most important thing in your life? Why is that most important? You know, and, and if they want to talk about that kind of thing, maybe they'll ask you the question back. Um, do you think much about spiritual things? What do you believe about God? Why is something right or wrong? You know, everybody seems to be fighting about right and wrong. Why do you think things are right? Why do you think things are wrong? Who do you think Jesus was? Here's an example of, of how I use one of these questions. And again, just pick. And if you don't like these questions, come up with your own. And here's the thing. If you ask the same question over and over again, you'll get good at it. You'll get good at the follow-up. Great follow-up question is why? And tell me more about that. Or what do you mean by that? Right? So whatever you ask, follow-up question is either why or what do you mean by that? And, and then you'll get good at maybe turn, because sometimes people answer these questions, I'd be like, I don't know how to answer that. And then like later on that night, I know how to answer it. And so then the next time I ask that question, if I get that answer, I know, oh, this is how I can turn it and, and have a conversation about Jesus. So I was at a funeral recently and I talked to the brother of the woman who had passed away. And we were talking about her and what an incredible life she had, and she was a follower of Jesus. And, and I said, you know, in all those conversations you had, and all that time you had with your sister, was there ever a time in there where you decided to give Jesus Christ your life? And he said, I, I'm not a religious person. And, um, you know, that's just, um, uh, just not something I've done, though. And I said, well, I understand you're not a religious person, but I just want to ask you one question. Who do you think Jesus was, right? Who do you think Jesus was? And his response was, um, I don't want to have this conversation, and I don't want to talk about it. I'm like, okay. So now we can talk about the Steelers or something, you know, you know but I, or, or talk about his, his sister some more. That, that's all God wants you to do. This man's heart has been locked and the door to his heart has been locked and closed for 70, 80 years. And I was just seeing, is it, is it unlocked? Is this a conversation we could have right now? No, it wasn't. Okay. I was uncomfortable for less than five minutes. And, and that's what God wants us to do because, because this is the answer. There is no political solution to our problems in America. That doesn't mean we don't get involved in politics. It's just we need to set our sights and say the next election isn't going to do it. It's not going to fix it. You know, there is no monetary solution to our problem in America. 
There, there is no educational. Boy, if we just told people the solution is Jesus and he is inviting you to be a part of what can change the world and even march on and conquer the gates of hell. Last thing, Jesus just didn't save you from yourself for yourself. He saved you for others. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that... Um, I just thank you that your divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us through his own glory and goodness. God, we just thank you that, that we are not like circling the wagons and hiding in our little fortress here from the world, that we are just getting ready, training, getting our, our, our armor on to go out and to conquer the world for Jesus Christ. God, I just ask that you'd help us not to, to, to sit back, not to retire, not to rest, but Lord, just to continue to fight for you. In Jesus' name, amen.